I'm Sean. I'm Lisa. And I'm Caleb, and this is Watcher Harry, a podcast where three obsessive and slightly drunk friends discuss the wider Harry Potter universe. Just a reminder, this podcast is not suitable for children, so please listen to it without any children, because we are uh, potty mouths. Hey guys, we're we're celebrating something. What are we celebrating, Sean? We're celebrating our one year of recording. Yeah! So, not to be confused with our one year of posting episodes but one mm-hmm. year of recording uh we got our zoom annual subscription renewal happened last week so thank goodness zoom reminded, reminded us of our anniversary because we big, did not big fucking news team what are what are our thoughts what are our reflections on one one year in the bag um you guys i am fucking just so thrilled that our friendship is what it is. Me too. Yeah. I, I think- feel so much closer to you both. Same. Yeah, this has been great for us, especially like not being anywhere near each. I mean, Caleb and I are closer to each other now, but when we started, we were all so radically far from each other. Um, and it's just been such a delight to get to like see you guys like once yeah. a month or whenever we record. I care. Like it's fun that people are listening to it. A- but quite honestly, fuck them. I don't care. No offense to oh. you. We're, we're clearly not making this for other people. We're not making yeah. this for you. We're making this for us. So. Oh, man. And then when guys from our freshman floor in college listen and give feedback, it's that much Hilarious. more fun. It's that much more fun. Yes. Yeah. It's extra entertaining. And thank you all for hanging with us. Uh, listening back to first episodes uh, compared to where we are now is like vastly different. Um, so thanks for hanging with us through, through the year. <laughs> yeah. My dad's favorite episode, just so all of you know, um, is the detention episode because really? he didn't realize how vastly fucked up the detention are. <laughs> <laughs> and now we can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> oh, that Meanwhile, actually be fun. If, if, it, if anybody has, if they, if anyone has actually a favorite episode and wants to tell us, that would be really cute. We would appreciate hearing that. Oh, we would love that. Would that would be lovely. My mom's over there like, what's a podcast? What's a podcast? <laughs> what is a podcast? Um, I also told my dad that if, because I talked to him right before this, um, if he has thoughts on wizarding education, he needs to text us about it yes. right now. Pronto. And I will include his thoughts. Uh, I doubt that he will. But if he does, <laughs> we will get to hear things from my father. <laughs> I would love that. He's a lifelong <laughs> educator. He is. He's a he is a lifelong educator. High school history teacher as long as I've been alive. So, you know, almost 30 years. Um, and yeah, just probably has a lot of random thoughts. Probably. I like the so I'm currently a high school history teacher. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a really interesting conversation for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I heard, Caleb, you can bring like firsthand knowledge to this episode. Oh, by the way, we're talking about uh like magical education systems this episode. Oh, yeah. We haven't mentioned that That's yet, but that is the topic. Yeah, yeah I'll uh, I'll do my best. I've only been doing this for a month and a half, so <laughs> very fresh. I have a feeling that you are so very good at it. Yes. Yeah, it actually so now that I'm in like teaching mode, um 
I feel like, uh, so I went a little crazy on the research <laughs> for this episode. I don't know if anyone's looked at the notes. I haven't. I have not looked at your notes, but I did receive like, um, you know, Google Docs will be like, Caleb has posted a comment. And all I saw was like, I think we have to talk about Roman Catholicism and like the Gutenberg press. And it was like, all right, <laughs> sure. <laughs> of course I- we do. I made a note like mostly for myself that was like, no, but the real printing press didn't come till the 1400s. And then I'm like, calm down. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Okay. Let's, um, let's, let's get formalities out of the way. All right. What are we drinking? Lisa, what I actually want to start with you because before we started recording, I want the listeners at home to know that Lisa just showed us a jug of something and she Pink. says that she says that it's beer, but what it looks like is that you have finally like devolved into your final form and you're now just drinking prison <laughs> wine on this podcast. <laughs> I was going to suggest toilet hooch. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so we all know that I am terrible at preparing for this podcast when it comes to alcohol, because I just generally don't keep much alcohol in my house because I don't think to. Um, however, uh, my roommate recently had COVID. And so no. we have been quarantining in my home. I have not gotten COVID. I have been negative this whole time, uh, somehow by some miracle. Um, but the two of us have just been like hanging out in our home. And so we, I stopped at a brewery, picked up a growler and a crowler of this. Um, and this is from Logan Brewing in Burien, Washington, um, where all of the beers have different video game names. Um, I think it is a tribute to the owner's brother, which is incredible. Um, And this one is Double Hearts, and it is a raspberry sour, but it was in a crowler. So once we opened the crowler, we didn't know what to do with it. So I stuck it in a <laughs> giant mason jar. And now I'm just drinking out of a mason jar. And it looks like I'm just drinking bathtub gin. It looks uh, delicious, it, though. Did it keep its carbonation? Yeah. It was nice. only open last night. It's not like it was. It's not like days. Um, but it tastes very good. It's like very raspberry, but not like super sweet. Um, pretty tart. And unfortunately, 7.9%. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't have to be up for work tomorrow until 8 o'clock. So here we are. And it's 5 p.m. for you. It's 6. 6 p.m. Perfect. Because, yeah, we were supposed to start at 5. And then we started at 6. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm glad you have something you enjoy. Let's keep this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Sean, how about you? So I am drinking um, a hard cider from a cidery down in South Philly called Hail and True. That's really good. And it is the Goldberry. It is the Lord of the Rings cider that I texted you guys about. Yes! Oh, gosh. Um, so here it is. Here's our here is our obligatory Tom Bombadil reference per episode. We um, love Tom Bombadil. So it is a uh, a strawberry and lemon hard cider. And it's very, very good. Oh, that sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. Big fan. Yeah. I mean, we are a pro Tom Bombadil podcast, so. Yeah. And I, I ordered it because obviously it was called the Goldberry. And then I drank it. and was like, oh, and it actually is, is good. I didn't just buy this thing for the name. Incredible. Okay. What about you, Caleb? Uh, I, uh, so I have this really great um, carry out beer place by my house. It's the only thing in Levittown, Pennsylvania that's 
worth seeing. Um, and so I always get like a variety pack that's on sale. So now I have a flying fish, um, citra pale ale, and some other kind of IPA on deck because nice. we record for so long. Nice. Uh, so last episode, I drank bourbon for two hours. And let me tell you about Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> it was fucking awful. And I learned my lesson. Um, kind of sick to beer. <laughs> Probably a good choice. Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> okay. So as we said, we're going to talk about magical education this episode. Um, it. I have not read the notes, so I only know what I looked up. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that we kind of are, are freewheeling all over the place. So <laughs> I, I think at least Caleb, I'm not sure Lisa, if you as well, went more into a kind of like historical perspective. So I would love to mm-hmm. start with that before we dive into the super specific like Hogwarts, Harry Potter stuff. Yes. Uh, so there is a method to my madness and do not be alarmed by the amount of notes. I would like to make this conversational as much as possible. Um, but Tracing back to our detention episode, was that episode two? Yeah. After Horny Books. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you recall um, from that episode, I started to research the history of British boarding schools because I wanted to know more about the inspiration for Hogwarts as we know it, because as uh, the three of us were American public public school kids um, and it our limited perspective of what a boarding school is kind of makes it seem like inherent to the Harry Potter universe and not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing I wanted to do was just zoom out a little bit and um, bring another historical perspective. So something that I've sort of like criticized um, Hogwarts for over time is that it's like an institutionalized and patriarchal method of teaching magic, which was folkloric and passed down um, matrilineally through witchcraft, um, you know, over time. And so I wanted to kind of unpack that. Um, Any thoughts before I dive in? Uh, No, I really like that concept though. Um, and maybe we can talk about it a little more when we talk about the wizarding homeschool tradition as well. Okay. Awesome. Um, so yeah, my driving question, uh, for my research was how, you know, how was magic passed down prior to the institutionalization of educate of wizarding education? Um, and first I want to acknowledge that while I'm talking about this, I'm referring to hugely complex amalgamation of practices of folk healing, folk magic, religion, different ancient beliefs around sorcery. Like there was no way to do this research in a way that honed in on any one like magical lore. Um, So, and and it's mostly Wikipedia. So these are generalizations. Um, But so magical practices um, prior to written language were handed down through folk tradition and then slowly moved toward being handed down through written language um, and the earliest known written magical incantations come from ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq. Um, And so like the earliest form of written, you know, what we might call a spell book um, was found on cuneiform clay tablets and cuneiform is like the first written language, um, meaning like 
cone. So they were just shapes. And so the ancient Greeks and Romans actually believed that spell books were invented by the Persians. Um, and then in medieval Europe, uh, we had spell books called grimoires. Uh, and these were sacred texts, uh, like I said, of European origin. And these were like spell books as we know them today. Sean, what do you, what's your take on spell books and modernity? Do you have them? So I, um, I am for anyone who doesn't know, I'm very interested in the cult. I, um, do some occult adjacent, uh, stuff. I would not, I would not consider myself. I'm not a practitioner of like, um, witchcraft in the British tradition, uh, or any kind of formal sense. My interest is actually in folk magic and the way it intersects with kind of modern recognized religion. Um, so uh, you know, folk magic within Christianity or Judaism or Islam or, you know, things like that is a little bit more where my interest and background is. Um, so I do know that the concept of the spell book, so the grimoire, it is something that you do see. Your, your book of shadows, which would be like the witch's personal spell book, is still very, very much a practice in modern witchcraft, especially like the kind of Wiccan traditions or, or the traditions that spout from Wicca. Um, so, and those are still considered to be a huge part of uh, the practice of those who practice in those fields. So you would have your own personal book of shadows where you would record uh, spell work and ritual that you do spell work and ritual that's been passed down to you from like your circle or your mentors or things like that. So it is still absolutely a part. Um, but Witchcraft, modern witchcraft is very eclectic. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're really talking about people who are kind of specifically practicing in those ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, thank you for that perspective because I don't know much about any of that. Um, so we had, uh, so like I said, so when something's passed down through a folk tradition, um, it's like an oral tradition, it's something that's practiced and learned. Um, from like hand to hand through generations um, and also through the written word. And um, I'll get a little bit into the history of the persecution of folks who practice magic. Um, and we'll see why it's so important that there was access to the written word. Um, but uh, yeah, so we mentioned grimoires, um, type of spell book. What I read was more Eurocentric in nature, um, but I want to acknowledge that there were types of spell books like across time and space throughout history. Um, this was not specific to, um, to Europe. Um, and one interesting thing, so I, I went a little crazy on this research and learned about how the advent of printing in Europe meant that certain spell books could be mass produced for the first time and then dispersed on trade routes throughout Europe. Um, and some of the first, some of the earliest books to be printed were actually magical texts. What do you guys think about that? I would be curious to know earliest texts to be printed as magical texts is if it's just things about women that men assumed were magical um so yeah so like just holistic medicine and things like um you know how to have contraception 
and mm. things abortion. like abortion right so yeah. i would be curious to know magical text if that mm-hmm. is actually based in any kind of like witchcraft basis or if it is just men categorizing women texts for women as witchcraft that's a good I point will, i will say that okay so there was so much information on wikipedia that it could not be distilled for this um but there are like specific publications named and they were like very like mysticism was at the core of them Um, So, okay. I I have a question. Um, I don't, you might, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but just something to consider when we're talking about Mm -hmm. magical texts, Mm -hmm. are we talking about things that were religious for the time and now would be viewed as magical? So I'm thinking of things like the Egyptian book of the dead or, um, Mm. kind of, a very early like writings of the saints that have like strong Mm -hmm. mystical qualities and, and have clearly like magic in them, but what we would now maybe call like early religious writing? I think there, so with the way Christianity was trying to like stamp out paganism and things like that, like there is definitely a bastardization of early religion and mysticism in some of these texts. But um, from what I can tell, there were things that were like purely not like religion as we know them. so I think maybe like, yes, and okay. to both of to both of your ideas. And I, I wish I had cited my notes better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, super interesting. And so I want to just like, like, it was kind of difficult doing this research to remember like, that I was reading history and not about Harry Potter, like fake ass shit. Like, like, mm-hmm. so what I'm like reporting on right now is like, actual stuff from history so um uh so yeah uh with the increasing availability of different texts um different like magical putting in quotes texts were dispersed now i'm not sure totally of the nature like to both of your points um i don't know if they were like spell casting books or if they were like more herbal practices um What I do know is there was a clear delineation made um, within the context of Christianity during like the early phases of the spread of Christendom throughout uh, Europe um, between like good magic and bad magic. And so good magic was like things that were more about nature and bad magic was like demonology, necromancy, other weird shit. And so the like good magic in quotes, the things that were more nature related, um, they were justified as being observed because God creates nature. And then like the bad magic, the demonology and all that was like satanic. And so some of the stuff from like what was deemed good magic was actually like more incorporated into religious practice. Um, so wish I had a better understanding of it, um, but super, super interesting. Um, and okay, so my point here is that um, if we are now imagining a hybrid Harry Potter universe, real world verse world, 
this is where I'm going with this. Uh, I'm now going to draw some connections between our human muggle history as we know it and wizarding history. Uh, and please feel free to jump in wherever. Um, so we've had magical practices passed down um, from hand to hand through oral tradition, through we've seen through written language. Um, and one of my questions is why, why did we need to institutionalize or formalize our magical education? Um, and so I wanted to explore specifically what contributed to the need for the founders to establish these formal schools of magic at the times during which they were established and had a lot of fun with it. Um, Sorry. Yes, Lisa. No, I just had an answer. Oh, what's that? Go for it. No, I was going to wait for Caleb to finish that question. Okay. I mean, about to talk for a while and oh. I can't see all your faces. Well, no, what's up? What do you oh, got? No, I was just going to say <laughs> convenience mostly. I think convenience. Yeah. Uh, I, was... I have a counterpoint. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I, I have an idea. Yeah. Um, and my idea is, is a little bit more um, uh, why J.K. Rowling would maybe write a, a wizarding school in this way. And that kind yeah. of delineation between your sort of oral tradition magic versus this like highly rigid patriarchal system. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at magic in the British tradition, and I'm talking about magic that people practice that, you know, like in our world, so I'm talking about Wicca, I'm talking about uh, Order of the Golden Dawn. I'm talking about like Aleister Crowley shit. Um, what we think of is that kind of more modern British witchcraft system is highly ritualized. It's highly regimented. It does mm -hmm. have these kind of, it, it's a structured mm -hmm. religion. So even uh, Gerard Gardner, Gerard, Gar Gerald Gardner, I'm sorry, who um, is commonly referred to as like the father of Wicca. He, I'm, I, I, I am not trying to say this in a way that disparages Wicca at all or people who practice Wicca. There are a lot, there's a, a lot of uncertainty about the origins of it. Um, so basically what Gardner said was that he had kind of encountered a, a group of witches who like initiated them into their practice and that the, um, the kind of magic they were practicing was passed on orally for years. So he, they said, this is an ancient form of magic that has just been passed on throughout the group for generation after generation. Is this true? We don't know, mm. you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, he kind of came in and became, uh, like a high priest within the group. He wrote a bunch of books on it. He's really the one who like brought that kind of modern witchcraft into the conversation. And I think the fifties, like he's the reason people practice Wicca. He's the reason that Wicca is like the type of witchcraft people know if they know anything. Um, yeah. so I do just think within the culture that JK was writing in magic was really patriarchal. Mm, interesting. Well, and I would also kind of say like, if you're looking at, um, the, but like, if you're thinking of like what, what people who know nothing about modern day witchcraft and things like that, um, 
kind of associate with with witchcraft is like covens and kind of more of that like matriarchal thing right like mm-hmm. if you're kind of thinking about especially like folk magic um as you're kind of like going and delving into stuff like that um even covens right covens are responsible for educating their members mm-hmm. right um and so I could see the idea of, and you see it in, and this is such a terrible example, (laughs) but it's the example that's like popping into my mind. Is it charmed? It is unfortunately charmed. I knew it. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, if you are thinking about it, right, where like in the later seasons, it's just wrought out of convenience, right? Where they have like, the idea of like, okay, we have our covens, but like, what if we expanded this and made it a little bit more? So you're getting like the best magical education possible kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of the burden doesn't fall on parents who have other things that like they need to do. Um, So it kind of like just essentially breeds an opportunity to pull away from, you know, parents having to take on a lot of that burden, which stems from potentially a more positive place mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think also could just be like certainly a lot of my naivety like naivety of like wanting to assume that a lot of these like a lot of in like a lot of that comes from uh like a more more positive outlook versus mm-hmm. um just trying to like rigidity like Gosh, I'm having such a hard time speaking today. Um, it's been a long day. Mm. Um, like militarize education and like put stuff on that kind of idea. Oh, totally, totally. And I don't even want to, we'll, uh, we meaning, yeah, we'll get into like why boarding school as a structure. Um, yeah. I totally agree with you. Like it doesn't need to be inherently like, um, negative to call something patriarchal no 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 no. i'm not saying that it is certainly Mm -hmm. i'm I'm that's not really where that's not my coming from yeah Yeah. that's not even necessarily what i'm what i'm reading from it it's more of just like the idea of like having like more of that like standardized structure which can often be especially in cute like muggle education systems if we're referring to like real education system where like certainly pigeonholes and denies a lot of people Mm -hmm. certain access to learning right like we see it in math a ton where Mm -hmm. the way that we teach math in the u.s is very specific to one group of people and if you don't know how to learn that way then you are told that you are bad at math were both of you told that you were bad at math yes i was yes yeah guess what you're probably not that bad at math Mm. No, My nervous system you were just, tells otherwise. <laughs> you were just taught in a way that wasn't good for you. And like, that is how so much of that is like our education system across the globe is extraordinary flawed because it works for some people. It yeah. doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. Oh my God. My dad is like the smartest guy I know. Total engineer brain. Uh, but he was dunce capped in Catholic school. Yep. Like, all Mm -hmm. the time because he had ADHD. (laughs) Right. And I think that's where I come from. The idea of like that negative connotation with, with standardized schooling is, Mm -hmm. is not so much that it's like being described as patriarchal, but I think it's just because it is so limiting and so exclusionary Mm -hmm. and not 
a, a not an appropriate way to be teaching anyone really like it, it's appropriate for about oh I don't know maybe 15 percent of the population and mm-hmm. the rest of the population is like well cool well I guess I'm dumb yeah They're like oh you can't survival of the fittest you can't make it in a group of 150 children come on, yeah. on top yeah yeah I think the I think the issue when you're talking about either like regular on like if real world formalized education or like this kind of wizarding education structure is that it's just a numbers game. And once you start getting into these like larger numbers of kids that need to be taught, these kind of like oral methods of passing things down are just not going to work, right? Like it's, the numbers are too big. You just need a way to teach as many people as possible. Right. Absolutely. But then kids like Neville fall through the cracks. Oh, but he triumphed. Interestingly though, so... I mean, moving toward needing to educate a larger number of people is actually kind of a sign of progress if we accept the concept of progress here. Um, So during the Middle Ages, um, rich families could send their kids to study with the clergy, send them to monasteries. Um, It was very ecclesiastical education. Uh, It was very selective. It was very narrow in its scope and then I think in during the ninth or tenth century whoever was the pope was like we need to expand our education system um, and create what they called charity schools which were staffed by the clergy Um, and then that led to like prep schools and that led to public schools and so um, there was some sort of driving philosophy behind it that education needed to be acceptable or I'm sorry accessible and that's a good thing, right? Um, but you know, okay, so we need to shift our model. How are we how are we doing this? And so something like a formalized patriarchal model, standardized boarding school, you know, it's not inherently flawed, um, but the way they did it, the the British boarding school model fucks some people up. Um, and we see how Hogwarts was for people. Um, and we've all seen Gossip Girl, so we know how it that's true. fucks up American students because it's just a documentary, right? Yeah. Is that a, for- I've never actually watched that. Oh, God, don't watch it. Okay. <laughs> Sean and was that I a boarding loved school it. Thing? It wasn't a boarding. It was a prep school. Oh, we loved, Lisa and I watched, like, we spent our whole freshman year watching it together. I remember you guys talking about it mm-hmm. freshman year, and I was like, I'm going to not. Well, for this more will never come. This will never come up again. <laughs> for more information about how British boarding schools did fuck children up, please see our episode on uh, Harry Potter detentions. Yeah, <laughs> boarding school syndrome. We're marketing um, within our own podcast. Look at us; oh, we can do man. that now. We have that many episodes. We have that many episodes. So, <laughs> all right, to bring us back. Um, so, I was curious about the historical context for founding these schools and so there are what are the major schools y'all the major wizarding schools there are wait i have 11 there's 11 but we don't have the name of all 11 Mm -hmm. so we have obviously we have so the ones we read about in the books we have hogwarts um which is in great britain we have durmstrang which is in either norway or sweden which i always thought was in russia but I assumed it was in Bulgaria. It's not. It's it's in this one of the, the Scandinavian countries. Um, yes. We have Bolbaton in France. And then those kind of like 
extra ones um, that she introduced later. Please forget bullshit on Durmstrang being in the Scandinavian countries because the it Scandinavian is. countries are like pretty progressive and Durmstrang is like not not in well, the wizarding give, world. They're not. Evidently. I'll, give you, I'll give you the context on why they're not progressive, Lisa. Okay. But there. Scandinavian so, countries or Durmstrang? Durmstrang. Okay. <laughs> but so out of the the kind of additional ones that are not in the book, please forgive me the pronunciations. I wrote them down. Some of them I really just don't know how to say. There is uh, Castellobrushu, Cast- which is in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Uh, Ilvermorny, which is in uh, the east coast of the U.S. Um, Koldostorets in Russia. <laughs> Koldostorets. Koldovstorets. Koldovstorets. I don't know. Nope. Um, uh, Mahurokuro, which is in Japan. And um, Waigadu, which is in Uganda. That's the rest of them. And then there's a couple that we don't know about. Yeah. Oh, and also um, there's apparently yeah. a shit ton. Like those are just the main ones. There's apparently a ton of smaller ones all over the place. And then a lot of people homeschool. Yeah. So the main ones we could say, uh, well, judging by the Triwizard Tournament, um, Durmstrang, Bobatons, and Hogwarts. At least in uh, Europe. In Europe. At least Again, in Europe. because this is an extremely Eurocentric book. Yes. yes. Um, so... Hogwarts was the first one of these founded in 993 AD, um, but I'm going to get to that in a moment. So Durmstrang and Bobatons were founded around the same time. So just around 1290 AD. Um, Durmstrang, so it's either Sweden or Norway. Um, I'm guessing back around like whenever it was founded, Uh, borders they were more highly subject to change Um, so this part of the of Europe was Christianized by 1100 AD Um, and so I'll talk a little bit more about how the spread of Christianity impacted um, magical folk Uh, but so they held on to pagan beliefs longer than any of the surrounding countries at least in Sweden Um, and I'm wondering if perhaps this led to a more severe persecution of folks who practice magic in this part of Europe, um, which might have like culturally influenced how Durmstrang was more militantly attached to their pure, pure blood philosophy and really um, preserving the traditions of magic. Um, so I could almost see that being like an interplay between what forces were trying to like stamp out magical culture and how hard they were railing against it by trying to preserve pure blood status. What do you guys think? So there were, I just, I looked this up. Fanfic of the world. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I did, I just looked this up really quickly because I thought I had remembered listening to a podcast episode about like witch trials in Scandinavia. Um, Mm -hmm. There they did occur in that same kind of 1600s periods where they were happening everywhere else. I don't think they were actually as aggressive as they were in some of the European countries. Okay. So they did have, they absolutely happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But so here I'm, I'm seeing that the, the Vardo witch trials 
which was a year period around 1662, were one of the biggest in Scandinavia. Um, but saying that only 30 women were put on trial. And like, obviously, oh. you know, in some other parts, like that number got crazy. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's like, it surprises that that doesn't surprise me either, because just like from the extraordinarily limited amount of things that I that, that we know about Scandinavian countries too, like magical folklore plays like a pretty big role in like a lot of their frozen too. Frozen, frozen too. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're also mo- at least modern Scandinavia is like kind of very famously not very religious. Yeah, um, correct. Like, religion obviously exists. There are religious people, but it is it is not the kind of like Christian centric culture that you see in like Western mm-hmm. Europe and America. Yeah, like Scandinavian, and especially like even like folks who still subscribe to like you know belief in like Norse gods and things like that like still are like that's a very very different thing you know like that they have a very different acceptance of the abnormal Mm -hmm. you know what is what is interesting though and I I know I know people who practice like a magical practice where they specifically work work with like Norse gods so I'm I'm not saying this in a, a negative way I know people who this is like that mythology is very important to like their religious practice there is a massive problem with white supremacy within oh, um, big yeah. fucking time so when people say that they so when modern practitioners say that they work with the norse pantheons they they're called heathens that's like what that mm-hmm. practice is that's what you would identify as mm-hmm. um and within heathen culture there's a massive white supremacy problem oh yeah so Shit. maybe it's not actually ridiculous that uh, Durmstrang would be a very pure That's blood actually focus. very fucking reasonable. I didn't think of that. I appreciate that perspective. As do I. Much. Yeah. Okay. So actually, so Durmstrang, I found because my, my part of this research, I like pretty much only looked at like within the Harry Potter universe. Durmstrang is the only school I could find that does not let in Muggleborns. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Um, and they also even seem to, and like, we can get more into the Hogwarts schools, I think in a second, but like, yeah, they're also like, they also have an issue with half bloods. Mm-hmm. Like they very specifically just want pure blood wizards. Um, Damn. And like, certainly Hogwarts and Bobatons are co-ed as well. Um, but I don't know about Durmstrang. Like, did they have girl or just like non-male they certainly the books, didn't let the, them compete in the books. Yes. They, Did they, they, ta- they talk about a female. I remember a female student. I don't remember. And and that's very fair. Like, I just don't remember there being a female or just like non-male Durmstrang they student. They would probably want the, them to be co-ed and intermingle and make more pure bro- pure blood. Which makes sense. Yeah, the, the movies yeah. did a weird thing where they were like, there's only right, women where at they and there's both only men in Durmstrang. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I and I thought about it because like specifically in Bobatons, like they absolutely have m- like male and female students, mm-hmm. right? Like very specifically, like Bobaton is not one or the other. Um, but Durmstrang, I just like, I couldn't remember. And I was trying to like piece that together from what I know from the movies. And then also what I know from the books. And I couldn't remember if they ever mentioned just like a not male student. I can double but check, I, but I, I think, I think they, 
state. I believe you 100. percent But like, it she's also not like me. a she's not like a character. It's surprise just surprise me. Yeah, especially just from how you know. Her unibrow, female her students. unibrow game would be so strong. <laughs> <laughs> she would just be like she would definitely brow. have a mole. Yeah. Yes, uh, certainly. She oh, has right. got a what? What? <laughs> she has got a what? They dress me up like this. <laughs> yeah, we did the nose and the hat, <laughs> but she has got a what? Oh, you threw me for a second with that. <laughs> I actually showed a scene from. Holy Grail in one of my classes. Yes, <laughs> to talk um, about the feudalism. My dad oh, was it the, the, the watery twat. I just, I just no. want you to know. What? He like he showed he. My dad's one of favorite pranks that he's ever pulled ever as a history teacher was that he had an in class movie day and he said they were watching a documentary. And this was back in, oh, or like the late 90s, you know, early 2000s. So like it wasn't like for high school students, wasn't like the thing that it is now because our parents mm-hmm. hadn't been showing it to us yet. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> he just started it from the beginning. Oh all God. of the kids in his class were like. <laughs> we're talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah, right now. <laughs> like Miss, Miss, Mr. Moen, uh what the fuck is this <laughs> that's amazing so, um it was so i showed the part where he he rides up on the people like in the mud and he's like i am author oh, the for you and then, I yeah vote like, for you you <laughs> don't vote for a king <laughs> we have a democratically election yeah how do you know anyway. he's a king oh he hasn't got shit all over him <laughs> And the child did not appreciate it, I will tell you. Um, this is also um, apparently a pro Monty Python. <laughs> absolutely. Why do you think oh, absolutely. Friends? I mean. Um, okay, so Beaubaton, as you said, Beaubaton. Lisa. Beaubaton. Um, founded in 1290. I did some fanfic here with some, with some history. Do you see my note? Okay, so I saw on Wikipedia. 1290 was a year without winter there was no there was no recorded winter it just went from fall to spring and so i was like oh it's because they were building this magical school oh my god you're right i'm so right that's my fanfic theory no that's canon that's canon that's Canon. canon All the wizards got, to, they were like, eh, we're going to skip this one. We really need to get the school built. Anyway, uh, so I'm having fun. And then so Ilvermorny, uh, founded in 1627. And so it's worth noting that the Plymouth colony was established in Massachusetts in 1620. So I'm not sure how the fuck they did this with the magical school or what the context is here. Um, but it's worth noting that the witch trials came a little bit later in the 1690s. Um, so now I've situated us in the scheme of other magical schools in history. And so Hogwarts was built in 993 uh, AD. And this is at the turn of the 11th century while Christianity is um, starting to spread throughout Europe. And for the listeners context, uh, this predates the crusades by over a hundred years. So like not Hogwarts as we know it, OG Hogwarts, like back, back in the day. And so to both of you, what happens with the spread of Christianity? What kind of pressure does this place upon people who are practicing 
magic or druidism or paganism. So go ahead. Wait, go ahead, Lisa. I was just going to say hi. I don't know. I feel like I'm in history class and doing a bad job. So (laughs) I can only speak to what I know happened in Ireland because that is a magical tradition that I am and a a folklore that I'm interested in. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that they were basically just like, okay, all of our gods, they're part of Christianity now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they basically just with the spread of Christianity, what were gods either became saints or they became more, uh, they became fairies. So instead of being like, this was a God, now that's a fairy king. And so mm-hmm. they were able to kind of turn their history just into folklore and stories and myth and adopt Christianity pretty much wholesale and be able to say like, okay, all of these stories that we're seeing in the Bible that the priests are telling us, we just Mm -hmm. see these reflect in our own mythology. We have no problems with this. Um, So one of the most famous examples of this is um, the goddess Bridget in Celtic mythology uh, is indistinguishable from St. Bridget, who is one of the most famous and beloved saints of Ireland. What is her deal? So she, um, and there, there is some debate about this again. So with, when you're talking about, uh, the Irish, the Celtic, this was an oral tradition, nothing was written down. So Mm -hmm. anything we're getting now that's been written down has been processed through this lens of Christianity and the printing press and everything that we're talking about. So when we're talking about Bridget, again, we don't, she, some people say she was an ancient goddess. Some people say she is a more modern take on the goddess. Some people say that she is a Celtic version of the like triple goddess that like maiden mother crone archetype that you see Mm -hmm. in a ton of different cultures. Um, But basically when you look at Bridget's feast day, when you look at some of the things that she was the goddess of some of her stories, and then you look at the Catholic Saint Bridget, uh, they share the same exact feast day. So if you are a more modern magical practitioner in bulk, which is one of the um, uh, one of the holidays in the witch's year is also Saint Bridget's feast day. Um, mm-hmm. They they just the Christians just took it wholesale. Yeah. Everything is exactly the same. Yeah. And so as you're as you're describing, it was a, a process of assimilation and simultaneously a, a process of elimination. So it was like we're ushering certain things into Christendom. And then there was a very deliberate process through which they stamped out certain things that were deemed to be too much like of mysticism. And so they did this with actual legislation, like making certain things illegal to talk about. Um, and one thing I found really interesting. And so, okay. Uh, so during this period at the turn of the 11th century, um, we're like smack in the middle of feudalism, which is like the King is at the top and the King is next to the Pope and the Pope is the mouthpiece of God and all this shit. And then it comes down to the, the poor people in the mud. Um, and so, yeah, my note is that the Pope and the Kings were homies with God. Um, so <laughs> I don't know where wizards in the wizarding world fit into any of this. All right. So what's happening with the, the spread of Christianity? We have assimilation and elimination of certain practices. Um, and we're seeing a crackdown on magic from like the top down from the Pope all the way down. Um, 
and it gets to the point. So there were some, there were some kind of like witch trials and witch hunts. Many thousands of women have been killed over the years for being accused of witchcraft. Um, but also men were. And so men of the clergy were accused of witchcraft because we're in this time where like things are swirling together and certain things are being made taboo and illegal. Um, one thing I found really interesting is in 643 AD, it got to the point where so many people were being killed because of um, like witch trials um, that they wrote something into what was called the Lombard Code, uh, wherein they didn't even want witchcraft acknowledged in the capacity of it being illegal because that would legitimize it as real. And so the quote I have is, let nobody presume to kill a foreign serving maid or female servant as a witch, for it is not possible nor ought to be believed by Christian minds. So they're like, we can't even kill people on the premise of them being witches because it legitimizes witchcraft, right? Um, and that's 643 AD, we know how that goes down. Um, so how, you know, however, persecution of magical people was not new, um, all the way back to fifth century BC in Rome, magic was punishable by death. And so folks who practice magic, it is their culture, it is their livelihood, it's passed down through a bloodline. It's not new for them to be, um, trying to operate under the radar. Now we don't have the statute of secrecy in this wizarding world until the 1700s, which is surprising. But you can imagine all the pressures that are inherent to trying to keep a tradition alive when practicing it or even acknowledging it or speaking of it is punishable by death across time and space, across continents from like ancient Rome to medieval Europe. Pretty fucking wild. Um, it's crazy that the statute of secrecy was so late. The only thing I can think of is that it was just made in response to all of these witch trials like yeah. they saw it happen the witch trials kind of ended and they were like i guess we can't go back to that meaning yeah. like the statute of secrecy in the harry potter world yes yes yeah. yeah like i i mean that makes a ton of sense because i mean we see it in just like it's human nature to only make rules in consequence of something right mm -hmm. yeah so like it is very not human nature to make anticipatory rules of like, well, this might be a problem in the future. Let's make yeah. it a law to be an issue. It's like, hmm. But centuries and centuries of like, well, I mean, it's, yeah, I wonder, like, that's a turning like, point. For sure. It's and also, I think that like with the inception of Christianity and like that kind of form of organized religion where like a polytheistic, kind of notion becomes less acceptable mm -hmm. witchcraft becomes less acceptable yeah absolutely yeah. right so like just like a lot of things right if you if you mm -hmm. take a look at anything kind of going on in in ancient greece in like ancient rome whatever you know mm -hmm. you have a lot of these um you know non-magical folk practicing essentially just like magic right trying mm -hmm. to like appease their gods and trying to like elicit some sort of response from a god who mm -hmm. may or may not respond right like mm -hmm. and i think that becomes with the inception of a like monotheistic society and like more of that kind of organized religion becomes less of 
an acceptable thing. And I think when that became mm-hmm. more widespread with colonialism and, and whatever, that becomes yes. a thing where wizards are like, cool, we should really hide now. Yeah. yeah. And hiding, <laughs> hiding is the word that, that comes to mind for me. Like, how do you get um, an entire like group of people around the world to hide Mm-hmm. themselves like that's that fucking sucks how do you how do you enforce that um, and the way that you enforce it is by scaring them into thinking that muggles are stupid and yeah. muggles are scary and muggles are going to kill you and they're dangerous and all of these things whether yeah. it's true or not and you also yeah. put into place a fairly harsh system of punishment where there is, you know, incarceration if mm-hmm. you are caught, um, you know, in violation of this code. Mm-hmm. And yeah. exile, like yeah. you get your wand broken. And- right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I um, think I think the answer and we see this in human history, propaganda and punishment. That is how. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very effective. Extremely. I mean, us- it's 100 percent effective. This brings us perfectly into my next question. Um, so to recap past hour, um, we've seen the persecution of people who practice magic. Um, we can understand the reasons why they would be driven into hiding. Um, and now, so thinking about why um, the founders of any of these schools might want to institutionalize their learning, which bring, each of these schools, which we'll talk about, brings they bring many branches of magic together, um, ones that aren't typically seen grouped together in other magical lures, but in this wizarding world they are, which is pretty cool. Um, and so my question is, why, why a boarding school? Why something like this? Um, and so I, I went back and looked into the history of boarding schools again and see that the crux of them is really the preservation of culture culture and class systems. Um, And so it would make sense that we would wanna channel um, our students into a central place of learning where we could imbue them with like the exact values we wanna imbue them with and boarding school is a perfect setting for it. Yeah. Can can I also uh, maybe a slightly more like conspiracy theory mind it, but you're also talking about a culture that every single job is a government job and the government funds Hogwarts. And like, you are now Mm -hmm. bringing all of your young, um, new, Mm -hmm. you know, new to magic children together to learn from government government. curriculum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, in Great Britain, so I looked to the UK for the model of boarding schools. Most of the schools were not, they were mostly privately owned. And so, Hogwarts was government funded. um, And so it's kind of like a double-edged sword. So it was accessible to people like the Weasleys. um, But then it also was funneling folks into government jobs, whereas privately owned schools are more upper crust and insular in their, in their culture and really like perpetuate that class system. So um, yeah, double-edged sword on that. The classic British boarding school. So what we, picture today so not like a monastic setting for rich people to send their sons to to learn how to read good um really became popular during uh, the colonial expansion of the british empire and so this encouraged like the spread of british ideals globally um and i think as i mentioned earlier 
really uh, the, the aim was to keep culture intact. And so if we're talking about preserving culture and preserving class systems um, among a lineage of people who have been historically persecuted just for existing, it would make sense that you might want to concentrate your education, bring different branches of magic together um, into one institution per part of the world, per country, per region. Um, as we said earlier, there are many wizarding schools. Um, we don't know if all of them were boarding schools, but to me, it makes sense that if you're kind of pushing back against this like pendulum of like persecution, um, you might want to lean into a model that really encourages uh, the preservation of, of a belief system and of a culture. So um, super duper tracks with the pure blood thing makes sense to me. Um, I feel like after doing this research, I understand a little bit more of the clinging to traditionalism in this wizarding world that we see um, JK Rowling aside. So I, I, I hope this was helpful. <laughs> I know this was like an extra hour long tear boy was it just so fascinating i haven't had <laughs> my mind changed so quickly in like many different forms <laughs> so i was your what do you mean how was your mind changed well so i just feel like you know when i first started i was like convenience you know and you're like yeah. i'm gonna make you change your mind and then yeah. <laughs> immediately it was survival it was a, a survival thing it's like and but yeah, it's just like one of those things. And then like, and Sean, oh gosh, what was the thing that you, that Caleb, you and I were both like, oh, Scandinavia and yeah. the Norse mythology, white supremacists. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like yeah. things. Wow. I didn't know anything about. It's really interesting to dig into the history of magic IRL because totally. it's so rich and I yeah. realized that while I was doing like my very little bit of research for this one um because mm -hmm. again my research very much kind of came from like okay the reason that I text you guys at one in the morning is because I'm thinking <laughs> these thoughts and the world needs to know them yeah <laughs> um kind of stemmed off of a lot of those and while I was doing that I was like man I really want to learn more about like actual magic but I just don't have the bandwidth to do it mm -hmm. and I'm so glad that you did because I was so yeah. fucking interested yay I hope it was linear and and comprehensible no, so interesting Sweet. especially because I just think that like how how we educate in general right whether it is passed down and like a very like education in general is like a very personal thing mm. right and so I think whether it's passed down in like a familial way or in a more more public more standardized way I think like how we all learn is it's it's so personal to how we are as people and the way that you learn isn't wrong mm -hmm. It's just different than the way that other people learn. And I think it's just so interesting to see how like all of, all of that has evolved, not only in like muggle education, but also like in the education of just like how things have evolved in general. I think that's so fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love thinking about this in terms of this larger issue of 
culture and I, maybe our next episode, I, I really, really want to do a, like a muggle wizard episode because oh, I want that so bad. I think, I think we're so ready. Fun. I think, I we're, think ready we're ready now. Ready. I actually think this, like Caleb, I think all of that research you just did is like what has led us to be ready for that episode, because you're talking about a group that has been highly persecuted. And so it makes sense that they're forming these really insular communities. It makes sense the way that a lot of them talk about muggles in either this way where they're very uncomfortable with them or don't like them versus they also just don't know anything about them because they're in such an isolated community. Mm -hmm. But we also can't forget that we're also talking about a group of people that are, you know, in this universe are a minority, but are so much more powerful Mm. than the majority. Um, and are victims in a lot of ways, but also pose an incredible, you know, potential threat to their muggle neighbors. So it is, it it is easy to get kind of torn in both directions when you're talking about the way that they form these closed communities and it's for their protection, but it also leads to this general outlook of superiority to muggles and how much damage Mm -hmm. that outlook can do when you're talking about a people that have exponentially more power right and especially as you start thinking about it in terms of like how the idea of like pure blood half blood muggle born muggle kind of comes into the fold right it's because of that idea that original kind of like statute of secrecy where like it's just bred from fear and boy, is that just so analogous <laughs> to just how yeah. people are, right? And like, I don't believe that JK intended any of that, right? It's the way that we are analyzing it as 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 we are going. Um, I think she certainly is, she's not an idiot, right? So she certainly intended it to come from human history and, and things like that. But I, I, I doubt she really intended it to be picked and pulled quite the way that like oh no no and no no not us but just like everyone right it's just good fun it's just good fun and she needs (laughs) villains and that's an easy way to do it Mm -hmm. yeah um and i think that it's just so interesting to see how you can kind of draw a lot of those parallels between and not even Harry Potter just like throw Harry Potter out of the podcast Mm. for a hot second you know just kind of like drawing a lot of those parallels between you know how just we as human history function on a grand scale versus in just like a lot of those like that you know kind of marginal Mm -hmm. history that nobody really thinks about the fear and othering is the oh absolutely the that's hundred percent what threat. it is it's, yeah and and it's in both universes it's while they run parallel but like you said throwing Harry Potter out the window I mean, it's in just hours it's how every so great consistent. war has ever started. Hey, everybody, this is a quick editor's note from me, Sean. Uh, Due to the length of this episode, we actually broke it into two parts. Uh, So to finish the episode, you can go to History of Magic Part 2, which was released alongside this episode. So everything's there. Um, We hope you guys enjoyed Part 1, and we hope that you complete the episode and listen to Part 2. Thanks. The Watcher Harry podcast is hosted by me, Sean Fitzpatrick, Lisa Moen, and Caleb Kelleher. Our editing is done by me, Sean Fitzpatrick, 
And our theme music is Dance Macabre Busy Strings by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. It's licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.